Let's pray as we begin. Our Father, we come again to your word this morning to open it, study it. We invite your spirit to do his wondrous and mysterious work in us through his word this morning to to change us from the inside out. Our Father, we desire to be like Christ. And so we ask that you would do that which you have predestined us for, to be conformed to the image of our Savior. And so, our Father, as we look at the word this morning and we speak to men, husbands, I pray, Father, that you would help me to speak with clarity and fidelity to this word. And that we would all listen attentively and act upon that which we hear. As the Spirit gives us enablement in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, it is my observation that the vast majority of people like to eat. I realize that is an incredibly profound observation, but I believe it is held up by empirical evidence, and you would agree with it as well. The vast majority of people like to eat, but few like to cook and clean up. Isn't that funny, huh? Most like to eat, but very few like to cook or clean up. And marriage is a bit like that. Marriage is a bit like that. Marriage is a good gift from God, and it's designed to be one of his greatest blessings. In fact, Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 22, Solomon says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. But just like eating a delicious meal, someone has to do the hard work of the preparation and the cleanup. Now, we have spent a long time addressing the role of the wife from this fifth chapter of Ephesians. And we don't want to, uh, to be there any longer. We want to move now to the men. And so that's where we are this morning. As we return to the fifth chapter a second time and a second message to men, husbands, men who want to be husbands. And so just as we come to the text this morning, I want you to think with me of this reality, men. If you are married... This morning here, God has placed you sovereignly in a position of great authority and influence over both your wife and your family. And it's from this position of considerable influence that we are commanded by the New Testament to exercise that leadership in a, in a model of Christ, uh, of the role of a servant leader. Jesus is our model. He is the one who perfectly displays what it means to love, to lead, to serve. And so we must, along the way, give considerable thought to our great Savior, Jesus Christ. But leadership, leadership is a, is a position of authority. There's no way around it. There can be no leadership without authority. It's essential. So really the question becomes, as a leader, as a, as a husband, how do I exercise the authority that comes to me by virtue of the fact that I am a husband? As I said last time, as I look at the text here in verse 23 to the end of chapter 5, I find 14 characteristics, 14 
characteristics of a husband's authority. And I want to look at them with you, and I want to do so so that we might understand, appreciate, and exercise that authority in a, in a Christ-honoring fashion in our homes and our marriages. We are in a position of authority, men. The question is, how will we exercise that authority? Last week, we introduced the first of the 14. This morning, we will look at a second. But it won't be a 14-week series, at least I don't think so. Because I think some of them will begin to, to sort of accumulate together. All right, so rest assured. I will finish before I retire. Okay? Don't ask me that. Are you going to finish before you retire? Yes. But this morning... We'll look at only another, because they're foundational. Last week, just to review, just to review, and if you weren't here, please, if you, go to the website. Go to the website and, and, and listen. You've got a lot of years of, of, that's been building up inside. Don't miss it. Last week, we noted that a husband's authority is unavoidable. That was our... That was our first characteristic we looked at last week, that a husband's authority is unavoidable. It's an unavoidable authority. And as we looked at that, we, we saw that demonstrated in a number of different ways. We saw it demonstrated in the, in the simple meaning of the word head here in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body, kephale, head. And we noted that there is no way around this, that the word head means authority. That's what it means. The husband is the authority in the relationship of a marriage, just as Christ is the head or authority over the church. So it's the meaning of the word head itself, which makes this authority unavoidable. Beyond that, secondly, we looked at the events of the creation, the events of the creation on that sixth day and following. And we noted there Adam's priority, right, in Genesis 2. Adam was created first from the dust of the ground. His priority in creation. Secondly, we noted his partner, right? God said, I will make a helper suitable, corresponding to him. The fact that Eve's creation from Adam's side was that to be his helper in the dominion task that had been given to him as a steward over the creation and over the word of God. She's one who comes alongside him in that. We noted it also, and I used a strong word for this, Adam's domination, his domination. And I use that word intentionally, by the way. It's a strong word. I did it for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is to cause you to sit up straight and think. But we did note that the man, Adam, names his wife twice in that text. Twice. He gives her the name, and that was her name. And then we looked at it finally in Adam's culpability. After the fall, God came searching, as it were, and he said, Adam, where are you? Where are you? The Apostle Paul, of course, in the fifth chapter of Romans in chapter 12, or verse 12, rather, or the fifth chapter of Romans makes the theological connections as in Adam all sin. It is Adam's culpability. It is Adam's rebellion. We look third in the demonstration of the unavoidable nature of a husband's authority in the grammatical construction here in verse 23 of Ephesians chapter 5, and we noted the difference between the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is a statement of what is, the imperative is a statement of what ought to be. Verse 23 is an indicative. It states what is. The husband is the head of the wife. Not husband, be head of your wives. The husband is the head of the wife. Later on comes the imperative. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. There's your command. There's your imperative. One. There's several more here. 
So, the meaning of the word head, the events of the creation, the grammatical construction of verse 23. Pulling all that together last week, what we observed from that is that the unavoidable nature of the husband's authority produces an inescapable leadership. That was our conclusion to it all. It produces an inescapable leadership role for a husband in his marriage and his home. Because the husband is the head, because he is the one who carries the authority in the husband-wife relationship, therefore, men, we cannot successfully refuse to lead. We cannot successfully refuse to lead. How we lead is a whole nother story, and we will talk about it a lot in the weeks to come. But it is something that we cannot escape. It is an inescapable reality of marriage. You are the leader of your home. A husband's authority is unavoidable. Second of the 14 characteristics, a husband's authority is covenantal. A husband's authority is covenantal. Covenantal. All right, let me develop this concept with you. In every culture and in every place, there is some discernible way of designating who is and who is not married and when that marriage occurred. In every culture, in every place, in every time, there is some discernible way of distinguishing or designating who is married and who is not married. And when did this marriage occur? That's essential, by the way, for the survival of a culture. Without that, a culture cannot long survive. You can imagine the chaos and violence that will come if there's confusion in these things. Now this designation, this, this marriage ceremony could be very simple. Could be very, very simple. For example, if you go to Genesis 24, you will see an illustration of a very simple marriage ceremony. Genesis 24, and beginning in verse 62. Now, this is not an exhaustive account, to be sure, but it's, it's a very simplified account of a marriage. Verse 62, now Isaac had come from going to Be'er Laharoi, for he was living in the Negev. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, Who is that man in the field, walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now that's a simple, a simple ceremony to be sure. But it established that marriage. It established that marriage. Now, it could be a very elaborate kind of ceremony. So... Go to Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon in chapter 3. And we can see an elaborate one. Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 6. Song of Solomon 3 and verse 6. What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke? Perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all scented powders of the merchant? Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon. 
60 mighty men around it of the mighty men of Israel. That's a lot of groomsmen, by the way. All of them are wielders of the sword, experts in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding the terrors of the night. King Solomon has made for himself a sedan chair from the timber of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, and its seat of purple fabric with its interior lovely, lovingly fitted out by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of, Jer of Zion, and gaze on King Solomon with the crown which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of his gladness of heart. That's a spectacular, right, state wedding kind of thing. So whether it's simple or ornate is not the point. The point is that there is some kind of legal slash social arrangement that is required to establish a marriage. Now, in the Old Testament, a marriage is referred to as a covenant, a covenant between the man and the wife. For example, in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 17, Speaking of the adulteress, it says, The adulteress leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Or Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14, criticizing there the men of Israel, he says, That she, that is your wife, is your companion and your wife by covenant. By covenant. Now it's important very important to, to recognize and establish this reality that marriage for God is a covenant because that's how God views marriage. That's how he views the marriage relationship. He views it as a covenant. Covenant. Well, if that's how God sees marriage as a covenant, we better figure out what a covenant is. So what is it? What is a covenant? Well, there are a number of definitions that are offered, but let me give you this. A covenant, and I quote here, a covenant is a formal agreement or treaty between two parties with obligations and regulations. Okay? A covenant is a formal agreement or treaty at times between two parties with obligations and regulations. Now, a marriage covenant is not a treaty between two parties, okay? <laughs> Don't understand that. But it, it is a formal agreement. It is a formal agreement between two parties that has obligations and regulations attached to it. This agreement binds the two parties together legally socially, and or religiously and theologically. Okay? It binds the two parties together, the covenant. That's what a covenant is. Well, when did the marriage covenant first come into existence? Right? When, did the, when did the covenant relationship first begin? Genesis chapter 2. So go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Beloved, in Ephesians 5, Paul was presupposing this. He's presupposing our understanding of the second chapter of Genesis. So if you're thinking, I thought we were expositing Ephesians chapter 5. Well, we are, but, we're, but in order to do justice to Ephesians 5, we need to understand Genesis 2. So when did a marriage as a covenant relationship first begin? The answer is Genesis chapter 2. Now, what were Adam's first words? We don't know. We don't know what Adam's first words were. But we know what his first recorded words are. And it was something like this. Wow! Okay? 
Verse 23. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. We can get a, a sense here of the, of the animation in Adam's voice. He didn't just monotone, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. No, this is, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In fact, in fact, we know this textually because there's a threefold use of the adjective this one. You look in the margin of your Bible. If you've got a study Bible, you look in the margin of it, it, it will tell you that. Literally, it's, it's something like this. The man said, this one is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because this one was taken out of man. Adam at once recognizes in the person of Eve, the woman, the complete physical correspondence. Right? It was not good, verse 18, that the man was alone. There was no one to correspond to him. We've talked about this before. He wasn't alone vertically. He was in a perfect relationship with God. He was in perfect fellowship with the creation itself. He was in dominion over the creation. Uh, he had a dog. But he's alone. Why? Because there's no one like him. He recognizes immediately she and he are made out of the same stuff. So he gives expression to it here. This one is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But he's saying more than, than making a, a simple observation on a, on a shared physiology. There's much more here. Adam is making, by these words, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, I believe, a pledge of covenant loyalty. A pledge of covenant loyalty. Let me develop this for you. In the Old Testament, sometimes the, the use of, of the word flesh by itself, it, it speaks to close relationships. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 37 and verse 27, Joseph, his brothers say, he, Joseph is our brother, our own flesh. Six times, six times, okay, six times other than here in the Old Testament, the, the, we find the expression bone and flesh, okay? So it's not widely used. Six times we find it. And it's used in the context of a relationship. So I'll just show you one of them. Genesis 29, verse 14. 29, 14. If you get my notes, you've got them all. This is Laban speaking to Jacob. All right, this is Jacob, Laban's Jacob's uncle. Aren't you glad you don't have an uncle like Laban? <laughs> Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. Okay, so that's a statement about relationship. Family ties. But two of the times, two of the times, the expression bone and flesh is used in the Old Testament, it speaks of covenant. It's actually one time it's used, but two references. So 2 Samuel 5, 1 and 1 Chronicles 11, 1. So we'll just look at the 2 Samuel 5, 1. So 2 Samuel 5, this, this occurs after the, the long war between the house of Saul, right, and essentially the house of David. 
It's an awful time of transition. And after David prevails, we find here in chapter 5 and verse 1, then all the tribes of Israel, the northern tribes, came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old. When these the elders representing these northern tribes come to David here at Hebron, and they say, you are our bone and flesh. They are not saying we have the same roots. What they are saying is that we will be loyal to you. We will be loyal to you. And they made him king. We will support you in all kinds of circumstances. If we understand Adam's statement back in Genesis chapter 2, you can go back there, and verse 23, in light of that kind of pledge of loyalty and support, then what we have here is more than just a statement about, as I say, physiology. Hey, she's made of the same stuff I am. But Adam is pledging to the woman here his covenant loyalty. It's kind of the biblical counterpart to a, to a more traditional marriage vow that you and I are, are more familiar with, right? Something along the lines of in weakness and in strength, sickness and in health, that sort of thing. What Adam is saying here, I believe, to the woman is, in effect, circumstances will not alter my loyalty and commitment to you. You are bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Of course, we all know how well that turned out, right? So I believe Adam is making here a, a, a pledge of covenant loyalty to her. Secondly, he makes an interesting statement about identity. This one shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She shall be called woman. To call something in the, in the context here of the, the creation is to both uh, identify it and, and name it by which it will then be known. So as to establish its identity. For example, over in chapter 1 and verse 5. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Why do we call the light time day and the darkness do we call it night? It's because Adam identified it as such and, well, excuse me, not Adam, God identified it as such and named it. You see in verse 8, God called the expanse heaven, and that's what it is. Or verse 10, right, God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the seas he called, the gathering of the waters he called seas. So it establishes, by calling it this, it establishes its name, that's what it is, and its identity. Now let's go back here to chapter 2, verse 23. This one shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Literally, this one shall be called Isha, for, she, for this one was taken out of Ish. In other words, she is a partaker of his nature and a bearer of his name.
Instead of two different words like male and female, she is given a name that by its very sound forever reminds both of them of her solidarity with him. She shall be called Isha, for she was taken from Ish. The Anglo-Saxon word woman, literally womb man, speaks of the woman as the female correspondent to the man. It just recognizes this reality. Beyond that, Beyond that, take a look at chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 2. I'll pick it up in verse 1. This is the book of the, gene, of the generations of Adam in the day when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them Man, in the day when they were created, literally, he named them Adam in the day they were created. Together, right, he created them male and female, and he named them Adam. And he named them Adam. Now, this is, this is really, I think, important to just observe. The woman by herself is not named Adam. She is only named Adam in conjunction with her husband. Together he names them Adam. Or man, or mankind. This is why, by the way, this is why in marriage a woman takes her husband's last name. Because it, it denotes the covenant has now been established. She is now identified with him. She goes from being Miss Susie Jones to Mrs. Susie Brown, or Mrs. Brown, okay? Together, together in covenant, God refers to them by the name Adam. Now, how is this covenant established? And what are some of the implications for marriage for us? Well, we've noted a bunch of times here, haven't we, that, um, that a man is not in authority over all women, generally. He's in authority over one woman specifically, right? His wife. And that relationship of authority and submission is entered into through this covenant of marriage. And the covenant is established when they exchange the vows. When they exchange their vows. It is by that that the man and the woman bind themselves together theologically, legally, and socially. This is why the most important part of any wedding ceremony is the vows. I've done a ton of weddings, and I'm pretty flexible about most aspects until it gets to the vows. I am very insistent upon the vows. And I am very insistent that the, bow, the vows that are exchanged be both thorough and biblical. Because they are what establish the covenant. It's not the ring. It's not the wedding sermon. It's not the beautiful music. 
It's not the prayer. It's not the reading of the scripture. It's not the, the music that the bride comes in by or the music that they all leave by. It's the vows. It's the vows. Generally speaking, young couples have not given sufficient enough thought to what is involved in the marriage covenant to write their own vows. So, I don't let them do it. If you want me to marry you, you got to use my vows. Well, can we tweak them? You can try. <laughs> you can try. I thought long and hard about these vows. First wedding I ever did was my two oldest girls. It's the first wedding I ever performed. And I wrote those vows for those girls and their husbands. And I've used them ever since. Because I gave a lot of thought to them. The vows are huge. They must be serious because the occasion is serious. By the way, just talking about wedding vows, I think it's noteworthy to observe that the groom says his vows first. Did you ever think about that? Why? Why does the groom pledge first and then the bride? I'm about to give you the answer. It's because her vows are in response to his. He makes the covenant promises and then she responds to them. He initiates, she responds. That's how the covenant is established. Well, what are the implications of all of this? What are the implications of marriage as a covenant? I've got a few of them for you here. You ready? This one will... Well, we'll I'm going to lay it on you, and then you see what you think. Unlike the fairy tales where the pauper marries the princess, not every couple belongs together. Not every couple belongs together because not just any man can effectively be any other woman's head. In other words, the people are not just interchangeable parts. Gentlemen, if you're not married, I'm talking to you, some women are clearly your better. Okay? Some women are clearly your better. In other words, they are intellectually superior to you. They think and process and reason at a high level that you don't. They will think rings around you. Perhaps they are educated at a very high level and you're not. Perhaps they have intellectual and academic interests that you don't. The idea of going to the art museum, for one, is, is just an amazingly intellectually stimulating time. For the other, gentlemen, you're going, are you kidding me? When do we get to go to In-N-Out? <laughs> There's a compatibility problem here. She may be your superior spiritually. In other words, she knows her Bible inside and out, and you are having trouble finding your way around the Old Testament. You are not ready to be her head. Her walk of faith, her, her spiritual maturity may be light years ahead of you. You are not ready to be her head. You're not well suited for this. Socially, she may be your superior. In other words, she has a class and refinement that you don't even know. 
Maybe she comes from wealth and position. She has cultural involvements and positions that are, that are just not your thing. She may be competence-wise your superior. Men and women are not interchangeable. Not every woman is well-qualified, or I said it another way, not, not every man is well-qualified to be every woman's head. It's good to recognize that. Yeah, but I love him so much. Where's a leather jacket and rides a motorcycle? Give it up. All right, lady, here it is. Another implication. Ladies, don't play dumb just to attract a man, okay? Don't do this. Don't pretend to be who you're not in order to attract a husband. It's a really bad idea. A really bad idea. And gentlemen, don't overestimate your abilities and go fishing in a pond where you don't belong. Okay? Have an honest appraisal of who you are. You're going to be, when you say I do, when you make this covenant, you are her head. Make it easy on yourself. You make the covenant, you got to make the best of it. When you get married, when you say I do, you did. You're married. You're married. And the marriage covenant should not be broken except under the most extreme circumstances. Now, praise God, he gives grace, right? He gives grace. We're all growing, and it's amazing what God can and will do, but I'm, but I'm just telling you, I'm speaking to the unmarried here. Giving, you know, I'm an old man, I'm giving you a little bit of old man's advice. Men, don't overestimate yourself. Ladies, don't short-sell yourself. You'll be a lot better off. Okay? He is your head. Think about it. Third implication. Back to husbands. The third implication of all of this, men, is that all marriage problems are ultimately your responsibility. All marriage problems are ultimately the husband's responsibility. Now listen carefully to me here, okay? Listen very carefully. Because of the covenantal union that has been made, it is no longer he and she. Living, as one writer says, living as permanent roommates with certain sexual privileges included. Instead of he and she, it is now we, bound together in what the Bible calls a one-flesh relationship, right? Here it is in chapter 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Something has happened. We contradict the covenantal relationship of marriage when we assume an adversarial stance within the marriage. When a marriage is having trouble, often what happens is, is it's looked at, the husband says, well, I got my problems and you got your, your problems, and the wife says, I got my problems and you got your problems, but most of the time they're looking at each other's problems, but that's the wrong approach. And they, and they come for marriage counseling and they want somebody to referee it. Notice I'm going to split the difference. If your marriage is in trouble, you have problems. You are one flesh. And husbands, you are responsible. You are responsible. Now that does not mean, listen carefully to me now, it does not mean that the husband and wife are not accountable before God for their own individual sin. They are. They are. 
But what it does mean is that the state of the marriage is the man's responsibility as he emulates Christ, who is the head of the church, by virtue of the new covenant. It is a covenantal arrangement. Just as Christ assumes responsibility for the sins of the church, so the husband must assume covenantal responsibility for the condition of the marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your, your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Speaking about the covenantal relationship. So, man, we take on a, a great covenantal responsibility when we get married. Okay? A great covenantal responsibility. We now assume the responsibility for the marriage relationship. Through the years, people will come. They might come to my wife or they might come to me and they want to talk about their marriage. And our answer is, get your husband, if it's the woman, or get your wife, if it's the husband, and we will sit down and talk together. Because it's not you and her, it's one flesh. One flesh. And our counseling strategy, I'll just tip you off, okay? If you, if you, if you come to Carol and I for marriage counseling, here's how it's going to go. We're going to focus on the man. We're going to focus on the man because, we're gonna, because it's ultimately his responsibility for the state of his marriage. Now, his wife may have great sin that she needs to recognize and repent of and, and so forth and change, to be sure. But ultimately, guys, it's you. It's you. You're the leader. You can't say, sure, she's got these problems. No. If she's got these problems, you have problems. You have problems. And you need to address them. Now, there's encouragement in this, guys. You ready? Probably about time for some encouragement, huh? You think? Otherwise, we maybe we'll do another. We will never do another marriage here, huh? Well, we've done lots of them. Praise God. And there's lots of really, you know, young marriages that are that are doing great. They're off to good starts. You understand these principles, and and you're working it, applying them in your home. Not perfectly. No one's doing it perfectly. But you're working at it. That's encouraging. Very encouraging. Listen. Put this one in the bank. God honors those who honor his word. Okay? God honors those who honor his word. What that means is, men... If we will honor the word of God in our marriages, God will honor us. If we will build our marriages upon the word of God, if we will assume our responsibilities, if we will take seriously our covenantal promises, if we will love our wives as Christ loves the church, and I've got a lot to talk about with that, then God will honor this. Reminded as we close this morning, I'm reminded of the words of Joshua, chapter 24 and verse 15, right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. Men, 
by the grace of God, may that be your statement too. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father, not by our strength, not by our power, not by our force of personality, not by our intelligence, not by our competency, in the midst of brokenness and failure and sloth and sin and self-serving, we cry out that you would help us to serve the Lord. How desperately we need the gospel to be reminded of the reality that it is not by the law but by grace. Father, may you help us as husbands to, to just dwell upon the reality of Christ, what he has accomplished for us. And as we think on these things, Father, may your spirit transform us as your word promises, that you're changing us in the image of Jesus Christ, the perfect husband. Our Father, we want to love as Christ loves. We want to sacrifice as Christ sacrificed. We want to lead in a way that, that creates security and and blesses our wives, our children. We want to exercise our authority not as the world exercises authority for its own benefit and purpose, but we want to exercise it as a way to serve. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Beloved, as I usually do, I'll be down front here following the service. If there's things you want to talk about, something I've said that has unsettled you or piqued your curiosity, I will be here to, to talk with you about that. May you go in peace this week, right, in the confidence of the gospel and the indwelling spirit of God. Peace be with you.